0: Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan. My guest today is Damian Barr. He's visiting New York from England, where he's discussing his new memoir, Maggie and Me, which just came out from Bloomsbury. It's about growing up in 1980s Scotland, and let's set the scene a little bit more than that.
1: Take us into the beginning. The book opens with the bombing of the Brighton Hotel, um, the Grand Hotel in Brighton, which was bombed by the IRA in 1984. And the bombing coincided with my parents' divorce. Um, the two kind of explosive events, if you like, happened the same weekend. And that's where I chose to start the book because it's one of my one of my earliest memories. You were um, eight. Yeah, I was eight. One of my earliest memories of something significant happening in my life. So, And Thatcher emerged from that bombing. The Maggie in the title, Maggie and Me, is Maggie Thatcher. And we all called her Maggie. It was never Mrs Thatcher. There was never any respect accorded. And she was like, you know, a, a Cyberman. Or if I'd seen the Terminator, then I would have said the Terminator. She had this kind of indestructible quality. And I found that quite impressive and exciting. And everybody else around me was hugely frustrated that she was still alive. They were like, what will it take? to kill her, why won't she die, why won't she die because she was despised in the community where I grew up which was a community which had had coal and and now had steel and was not going to have that steel for very much longer
0: and I think Americans sort of understand that Thatcher's popularity in England was always very precarious. But in Scotland, where you grew up, it was really pretty marginal.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, she was despised. Thatcher was this kind of blonde hate figure who was was just hated. She was blamed for every single thing that went wrong in our house, on our street, in our village, in our country. And, you know, particularly when the poll tax happened, which was this tax where she decreed that a duchess would pay, you know, the the same as a... Well, she never decreed that, but where a duchess would pay the same as a street sweeper and for their homes. And that poll tax was tried out in Scotland before anywhere else. And this was seen as a mark of contempt and there were riots. And in fact, some of the people who led those riots came to my school and we got a very exciting politics class. So she was really hated. I can't think of a single politician who's been hated more since. And when she died, people did dance in the streets.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how her policies affected your family directly.
1: Very directly. I mean, it's a cliche to say, but it is true that the politics, you know, politics is always personal. And growing up, I went to Keir Hardy Memorial Primary School. Now, Keir Hardy was one of the founders of the Labour Party. So the constituency that I lived in was the most left-wing place in the entire country. And... Thatcher's policies affected my family directly in loads of ways. Um, my dad was a steel worker. She wanted to move the country away from industry and heavy industry. So every night where I grew up, we had these two sunsets, and the second sunset that we had, which was red and orange and white, and um, was bright enough that you could read by it in bed. If like me, you kept a book under your pillow, and that sunset was the steel furnaces being emptied, and that was my dad's job. And I would look at the sky and see my dad in the sky and feel that connection with him and so we had that for the longest time and then eventually actually after that she was out of power but the process started under her it stopped and then it was privatization which is this very dry word which for most people meant you know they bought shares in public utilities like gas and electricity and they got very rich and for us privatization meant that we had to find more coins to put in the gas meter or the electricity meter, that we were often cold and that, you know, you had to stop reading your book when the lights conked out, not when they were put out and you couldn't put them back on until you got more money. That's the 1980s. It's not the 1950s. It's very recent history. So that affected us. Section 28 affected me rather than the rest of my family. It was a piece of legislation brought in under Thatcher's government, which sought to prohibit the teaching of homosexuality as a pretend family relationship. That meant that when I started to realise that I was gay and I wanted to talk to my teachers, who were otherwise incredibly helpful and lovely people, that I went to talk to them about being gay, they said, we can't help you because of Section 28. We can't talk to you. And that was devastating, to not be offered help by the people who wanted to help and then who normally helped me. So her policies really affected me very directly. You know, she really did shape the course of my life. Not always negatively, sometimes positively. And that is why I think the book is complicated. I liked her messages of you can be your own person. You know, work hard and you will go far. She was very Calvinist almost in a way. And those messages definitely got through to me. I was really square at school and worked very hard. And, and, you know, that was her effect. Right. And certainly what you were going through
0: in your home life was something that you were
1: quite willing and prepared to work your way up and out of. Oh absolutely. I mean I couldn't get away from home fast enough. I think most of us, you know, want want to get up and grow up and have our own lives. But my yeah. home for the most part, after my parents divorced, was at best chaotic and it washed a place that I would stay away from until My last friend had been called in from playing outside until I would drag myself home. You know, I'd walk two steps forward, one step back to avoid going back to a house where my mum's boyfriend, Logan, hated me. You know, He hated me, hated me, hated me, hated me. Absolutely despised me. And he hated me for being the son of another man. He hated me for being gay long before I knew that I was. He hated me for preferring books to football and, you know, all those things. So... And he tortured me for a very long time. And he was able to get away with that because my mum wasn't there. My mum had had a brain haemorrhage. She was in hospital recovering from it. And to her credit, as soon as she really realised what was going on, she got us out of there. But for a long time, he tortured my sister and I. And then after that, things kind of went, I mean, it sounds like they couldn't get much worse. But they did get worse in different ways. And my mum took to drink and she then had another partner who was an alcoholic and At this point, the fabric of our family is breaking down. Also, the fabric of the community is breaking down. As the steelworks close, everybody's made unemployed, and the local economy takes a nosedive, and it just seems like everybody's drunk for about five, ten years, you know, drunk and fighting and angry and sad. And as you mentioned, you
0: were struggling with your own identity issues, where certainly Logan, and as you write about, Quite a few other people seem mm-hmm. to have pegged you long before you really understood yourself.
1: Yes, they did. I mean, I think it's a strange thing to come to an understanding of yourself through the names that other people call you. But I knew that I liked my, my friends who were boys and and I liked my friends who were girls. But boys would mess around, you know, that, you know, boys will sort of stick it in anything up to a certain point, I think. And, and then after that, they're more interested in, in girls than they are in each other. And that just didn't happen for me. I did have girlfriends and I, you know, and I did have sex with girls, but it was really, that was the experiment for me, not the experiment. You know, boys were not the experiment. But it was very confusing. It was a supernatural culture, incredibly homophobic. There was no question. You know, the words to come out, that language didn't exist then. It was, I thought it was a secret I was always going to have to hide and I prayed to be changed. I was very religious and I prayed to Jesus to change me because I just didn't want to have this life that seemed to guarantee that everybody would hate me and despise me. and I was afraid a lot of the time.
0: Although things are not perfect these days, we often forget just how
1: horrible they were, even as recently as 30 years ago. Oh my God! It was it was it was terrifying, and it was also illegal. The age of consent was twenty-one. Scotland didn't decriminalise homosexuality until after England, until nineteen eighty-four, or maybe nineteen eighty. You have to check the date, but but certainly it was after England, and um, so it was illegal. The things that my friends and I were doing under the age of twenty-one by consent with one another were illegal, and we knew that if we were caught, we would go to jail. So think about that. It was disapproved of, it was despised, and it was illegal. And and that was really, 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 really scary. You did not want to get caught. We, everybody knew somebody. When I started to find a gay community such as it was, everybody knew somebody who had gone to jail. Throw into that mix that because this is the mid-80s yeah.
0: and you're barely on the cusp of adolescence struggling with the sexual identity, then the AIDS epidemic kicks in all we knew about it in 1984 because of the way that it was portrayed in the media you know this was back when it was the gay disease Mm -hmm. and for a young man or really still a boy who is still trying to figure out gayness in general
1: the idea that there's a, a, a deadly disease associated with it is i mean you panicked i was absolutely terrified I have a birthmark on my neck, just at the top of my collarbone. And I remember seeing the pictures in the newspaper of people with AIDS and seeing lesions on their skin and convincing myself that my birthmark, which I'd had since birth, was a lesion and that I was going to die of AIDS. I was completely convinced that I would die of AIDS and that all the hard work I'd done, you know, being a good student at school and all the rest but to get to the uni, the university, was going to be wasted, because I would be dead. And I thought me and my friend Mark would die, and that, you know, everybody would be ashamed. And my focus was thinking about, I mustn't give it to my mum or my dad or my sister or my brother. So I started taking my toothbrush upstairs to bed, and I wasn't actually old enough to shave by then, but when I became old enough to shave, I was very careful with my razor and stuff. So I was convinced that being gay meant you had AIDS, and that then was a, a death sentence. You know, it was a really really horrible time. And I remember going for my first HIV test, which was then just called an AIDS test, and it took two weeks to get the results. I think I was 15, maybe then. And I went to a local clinic, which was shameful because, you know, to be seen going in. Everybody knew why you went there. So I went a very odd time. I went, and the doctor was so judgmental. He said to me, you know, why are you here? And I told him what I'd done, messing around, essentially, with my friends. And he said, he told me that what I'd done was wrong. And that I was going to get AIDS and it was a question of time and I would die. And that, you know, if I didn't have it now, I would definitely get it. It was absolutely hideous.
0: We talked about how your mother's boyfriend, Logan, had identified your gayness and used it to bully you. But had your parents picked up on any of this before you sort of formally came out to them? I
1: think that they did because my mum... I remember the first time somebody called me a poof and they said it was such venom and such, more than that, they knew, they knew something about me that I didn't know. And I found that really disturbing. And I remember thinking, what is this thing that I don't know? And I ran into the house to my mum and said, mum, 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 what is it Jason, whatever his name was, just called me a poof. What's a poof? And she didn't say, that's not you or tell me who this Jason is or anything else. She just said, don't you worry about that. It's Okay. I think she always knew when I did come out to her, she wasn't surprised. She was upset and sad, and she tried to ground me, and she didn't take it well in all sorts of ways initially. She's now incredibly supportive and brilliant, but she wasn't ever surprised. My dad said, it's not true. I said, well, it is true. I said, it's just not true. It's not true. You know, come back to me in a few years, and I went back to him in a few years and said, still true, and he now gets it too. And I got married last year to... My partner of 20 years nearly and my mom and my dad were there and that was really special.
0: Your dad's reaction reminds me of one of the stories in the memoir where during one of your first visits to him after his new girlfriend moved in. Mary Canary. Mm -hmm. She tries to do makeup with your little sister who was enough of a tomboy that she was like (laughs) not having any of that. And so you volunteered and then at the end of it before she wiped it all off of you she took a Polaroid of of you and her together, and whatever happened to that Polaroid, it kind of
1: disappears in the memoir. It does, it does disappear, but it was kind of, it was enough that it existed, and I really, I'm not sure how consciously she took the picture to make me aware that if I didn't side with her or support her, that maybe my dad would see that picture. And um, but I don't, I don't ever know what happened to that picture. But yeah, I quite willingly volunteered. She was um, my dad's girlfriend was a nurse during the day and in the evening a country and western singer specializing in Dolly Parton impersonations. Maybe that's why I love Dolly Parton. But she was she you know, she very much wanted us to like her so that she could, you know, be, be closer to my dad. But she wasn't kind to my sister and I. Not in the way that Logan was violent, but you know, she got very much got in between us. You know, she'd we turn up to see him, and she'd say he's not in, and he'd say, well, that's his car, and she'd say, no, he's not here, he's not in, and he might be upstairs asleep or something or whatever else. But there was a lot of her being a barrier between us and our dad for both her and for Logan.
0: You and your sister were kind of treated as like this potential wedge between your them and your mother and father, respectively.
1: Yeah, we were an inconvenient truth. You know, they, neither of them wanted us there. They could have got rid of us. I'm quite sure that they would have done. And then when my brother came along, who was Logan's son, he was very much finally I have my own child's kind of thing. And my brother could do no wrong, and he, you know, we weren't allowed to make any noise, and and he was very much fought over and beloved. Um, and it, and so you could see that this man was capable of love. He just did not love my sister and I. He didn't hate my sister as much as he hated me at all. But yeah.
0: Now the memoir comes just about to an end at the point when. In the American equivalent of a senior year of high school, you decide to tell your friends who you are and be open about it. And then you jump ahead to the present day. One of the things that I'm curious about is what are the circumstances in the present day that motivate you to look back and decide now is the time that I want to tell
1: this story? I think for every memoirist, there's some kind of trigger or some kind of pressure that builds up. And for me, I was working full time as a journalist, mostly for The Times, and so I was telling other people's stories all the time. Very short bursts of 1,000 words or 2,000 words. And um, and also I was running my literary salon where I interviewed writers about their work and, and their lives. And so I, and I interviewed a lot of memoirists, people like Diana, Athel. I decided I wanted to write something longer. And so I sat down to write something longer, intentionally a piece of fiction. And it just wasn't, there was no fiction there. No fiction. I was just writing about myself, however thinly disguised, and it was a thin disguise. And so I thought, why am I doing this? Why can't I come up with something original? Or it was all very discouraging. And then I started to just be honest. I thought, I'm going to be honest, and I didn't know who was ever going to see what I was writing. And I did not conceive of it initially as a book. It was just I was just writing down fragments of things that had occurred to me. And the bits that I wrote initially appear in the book almost word for word. They have not been changed very much. And they are probably the most traumatic bits of the book. And then some of the happiest bits of the book. So the extremes, really. Um, and they were all just here, so sort of bobbing very much at the, at, at the top. I just got them out on paper, and I felt better for getting them on paper. There was a sense of catharsis. I wasn't thinking them about them as much, because they were all contained on this piece of paper. So I started to do more, and I experimented with different voices, not consciously, but sometimes I would write and I'd be very angry, or sometimes I'd be very sad, sometimes I'd be feeling sorry for myself, other times I would be trying to write something that was funny to distract the reader from something horrible, or myself from something horrible. And it kind of all started to coalesce about five years ago, when I decided that maybe this was a book, maybe this was a story. Because there's a horrible arrogance about memoir, which is you know, does contain the words me, moi, and I. It is all about you. And to do it, you have to accept that you are going to write a 75, 80, 90,000-word book about you. And that there's something very arrogant about that, you know. So I wasn't necessarily sure that anybody would ever read it, or let alone publish it, potentially. So it felt very weird doing that. And also, because a lot of what I was writing about was shameful. A lot of what I was writing about was about abuse, about being very poor at a time when people were very rich, about realising that I was gay in a world that did not accept that. And a lot of the time as a child I had been told, nobody will believe you. Don't tell a soul. Nobody will believe you. I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to finally tell the truth and be seen to be telling the truth. That was very important to me. And there is a shame about that in my culture. Uh, My Granny Mac would be revolving in her grave, I think, Um, because I'm airing the dirty washing, you know. But I had to do it. I had this compulsion. I was going to bed thinking about it, waking up thinking about it. I just thought, you know, if I do this, if I get it out, if I get it all done, if I get it out out of my head, I'll stop thinking about it, and I'll be able to write, you know, a novel or or something else. But what I realised writing the memoir was that memoir involves imagination just as much as it involves memory. And... The really great memoirs and the really great novels, I'm not saying mine's a really great memoir, I'm just saying that the overlap between memoir and novel is emotional truth. The really great novels feel true, the really great memoirs feel true. And so I used a lot of the techniques of fiction in my memoir. It's not made up, but there's a lot of the techniques of fiction. Because one of my editors, early editors, said to me, think of yourself as a central character in a novel. And actually that was very liberating. Because a lot of what I was writing about was very painful and to make it a bit more manageable for me as a person, um, that that helped.
0: Right, I was going to ask about the emotional effects of deliberately revisiting all the things that, as we've
1: talked about, you, you spent your adult life working to get away from. Your question contains the answer. Because I had been working to get away, I had achieved a degree of safety and security and distance from events. And I think, you know, my life then was very messy, and it was only when I came to be a student in Texas, in Austin in fact, that I achieved the distance from my life, it's like being up close to a Persian rug, and then you're above the Persian rug, and you can see the patterns, and how it all connects, and the colours, and everything like that, and I achieved this distance and thought, oh right, I can see what's happened there, and I can see what I don't want to happen in my life, like I don't want to become a drug addict, I don't want to kill myself, I don't want to be a sex addict, or or any of these potential futures that were open to me, it seemed as a person who had been abused and, you know, nearly killed more than once by their step-parents. And so I made a choice to have a life that wasn't like the life that I had had, very conscious choice, and that choice was supported by a brilliant partner and by great friends, I'm very lucky. So it was perverse to want to go back and open that can of worms that I'd spent so long getting away from. But actually, it was the healthiest thing I think I could have done. I couldn't have done it any sooner. I tried to do it sooner and failed. But obviously, there was a point where I got to where I could handle it, and I did it. But it was very weird. There were days you know I'd write, and I'd look up, and 12 hours had gone past on the really good days. And you'd realize you spent 12 hours on another time in another place. It was like time travel. And that was weirdly discombobulating. I felt I was not very engaged with the world at that point. News stories would happen and I'd be like, Really? There's been a, a riot, there's been a revolution, there's mm-hmm. I was out of it, you know. So you were doing most of this from
0: the safe haven of of England and Brighton. Yeah. You didn't go back up a lot.
1: No, I thought about that. I, I thought about so I've got a big box of diaries that I had that I wrote when I was a kid and you can see the diaries changing like they're like pop stars on the covers in the 80s and the in early 90s. So I kept diaries on and off, and I had all of those, and I got them out of my mum's loft, and I thought, right, I've got the diaries, and I am a journalist, I can do this, I can write this book contextualising me in the world of politics, if you like. And that just didn't work, and I realised that reading Diana Aithill, that you can only tell it as it was. I couldn't make observations that were retrospectively wise or any of those things. I I had to be present. So I chose to write it in the present tense and in the first person. Two things, again, I found hard as a journalist to overcome, but I did. And I thought, right, do I interview my mum? Do I interview my dad? Do I interview my sister, my brother, any of these people in my life? And I thought, no, I don't, because it's not their story, it's my story. And they will have a different view on it. You know, you and I will have a different view on this conversation. Today, anybody listening will have a different view on the events of their workplace that day or their, their home that night or whatever else. So, and to a weird, you know, it's that Graham Greene quote, the, the chip of ice in the writer's heart. You kind of just don't care. It's not about what my mum thinks or what my sister thinks. It's about what I think. And am I saying it's the only truth? No, it's my truth. So it's morally comprehensive from my point of view. And that's all any memoirist can ever claim, or should ever claim. But I didn't go back lots. I did a couple of times call people and say, now what about this fact, you know? And then they sometimes didn't remember, and I realised I could only rely on myself. I did not read the diaries until afterwards, and I thought the diaries would contain amazing insights, and they contained trite, teenage, self-involved nonsense.
0: You mentioned Diana Athill just now, and then again before in terms of your, your literary salon. I'm curious about any other sort of memoir models mm. that were helpful for you. Oh, there's some
1: really great memoirs being written just now. I think it's a brilliant area. Um, Rupert Thompson's memoir, This Party's Got to Stop, is brilliant. It's about what happens to him and his brother when his dad and his mum have both died and they go back to the family home. sort of Like, all the rules and authority have been removed, and darkness and chaos descend. But yet, sometimes they're two boys, and sometimes they're two men. And it's a brilliant piece of storytelling, because it's very clear. But at the same time, he doesn't tell you everything, so there's space. And in this space, there's menace and tension. So I really like his book. Satnam Sanghera's book, uh, it's a memoir. Or the boy with the top knot is about growing up as a Sikh in Wolverhampton in the Midlands in England and he grew up at the same time as me we the same age and what I loved about that book was the way he wove in all the cultural references all the music and all the telly and the way that he used humour to tell a story that was very dark you know his parents have serious mental health issues that he didn't find out about until very much later in his life which then explained why things were the way they were in his home, and he deals with racism and, and stuff as well. And that was lovely. And that book gave me permission, in a way, to tell, me, tell my story. Because I thought, Satnam's the same age as me. And he said to me, look, nobody asked me to tell my story. Nobody's ever going to ask you to tell your story. You have to want to tell your story. And, and do it. And do it in your own voice. And that's what I struggled to find, that voice. And when I realised that that voice was the voice of me as a child, so first person, present tense." I mean, I realised that, that it was all right to be funny and ironic and not as a way of distracting or as a way of, you know, making people feel better, but just as it was, you know. So there's a funeral in the book of a child, which is very sad, but also very funny. The, the mother who had lost her child was really big and bosomy and was so, so hysterical with grief that she almost fell into the grave. And, and it was just this tragedy and comedy being so close. Particularly in Scotland, in that part of Scotland, actually. There's a thing I call Glasgow Gothic, and that is a big thing. So anyway, so those those memoirs were all important in different ways. Also, Jeanette Winterson's Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. Brilliant memoir, because in it, she addresses a lot of the stuff from Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit. And you can see where she's been fictionalising and where she's using memoir. But the book is brilliant, because basically it's all about Jeanette. And she just, you know, all through the book says, this is my story. Have I told you it's my story, by the way? This is my story. And I found that really reassuring at the points when I was wobbling about having the right to tell my story. and, And actually, you know, that was very bolstering.
0: You mentioned that, you know, this is your story and you didn't bring in your family's perspective because it would be a different perspective. And this is your story. But now that it's out there, how have they taken to it?
1: I did ask the permission beforehand. I asked my mum and my dad's permission. I said, look, I'm thinking of doing this thing. What do you think? And my mum said, it's your life, son. You can do what you want. Change the names. All the names in the book are changed. They had to have a legal edit for that reason. My dad said, if you write this book, I'll never talk to you again. Now, he does talk to me, He doesn't say very much. He never has. But that was scary to think, ooh, right, OK, this might upset people. But here's the thing. I did not write the book. Out of malice, I did not write the book to try and get even. I did not write the book to try and make people feel sorry for me. In fact, that was my greatest fear, writing this book, was that people would look at me with side head and kind of go, "Mm, you know, I didn't write it for any other reason than I just wanted to get these words on paper and tell my story. That was really all I wanted to make sense of my past. And the book has given me all the things that I wanted to give me, and more, right? Personally and professionally, this book has been just... A wonderful lovely thing and the greatest thing is the responses from readers who get in touch every single day really different people to me like you know middle-aged women from Surrey or wherever saying thank you for telling my story and I haven't told their story I've told my story but they feel an emotional connection with it and that is honestly redemptive and transformative my own family my mum hasn't really read it she's read bits because she finds it very painful And she makes her feel bad. But at the same time, she just has people coming up to her in the street constantly or she reads things in the paper about the book. And she feels very proud. So she's very proud of her son, but I think doesn't feel so good about herself as a mum. Which is a shame because, actually, I think she's just... The love of my mother I have always had and always will have. It's like a superhero secret power that I've got. And she may not always have been the best parent, but I have always felt loved by my mum and my dad. My dad doesn't really read, don't think he's ever read a book. He read an extract in the Daily Mail, which was quite a shocking extract. And he said, if I'd known then what I know now, your life would have been different. So that was kind of lovely, because of course I kept everything a secret as far as I could. My sister's been hugely supportive and fantastic, and my brother has been too. My wider family have not liked it. And I did a reading recently in the library closest to my home in Scotland. I had to have security because people had threatened to turn up and cause trouble, which was sad and shaming and everything else. But that's just how it was. And in actual fact, it's one of the best things I've ever done because the book was the 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 library was full of people from the book who were full of love, and I can't tell you how validating it was. And just cry and start to finish including me and um it was really one of the loveliest readings that i think i will ever do
0: now in talking about all the positive benefits of going through the process of getting this out on paper and out into the world now that you've done that are you ready
1: or or even interested in starting over and doing it all again with I don't know, I, I get asked this question all the time I get asked a lot of questions actually People tell me their are stories and then and they say things like How's your mum, how's your sister It's very strange being on the other side of the world And people asking about my mum I don't know, the book has been optioned by a big production company And it looks likely to become a BBC TV series And I'm co-writing that um, with one of the guys who wrote Shameless Which is really exciting so I'm working on the TV adaptation, and I'm doing, right now I'm doing a story as well, a separate story for, for Radio 4 about something else. But I don't yet know what I want my big piece of writing to be. I don't know if I want it to be a novel, or if I want it to be a memoir. I think if I write a novel, people are, unless it's set unless it's a woman who's 500 years old living in a science fiction future and is so far removed from me, people are just going to be desperately trying to find similarities. I think I'll find that frustrating. So I don't really know what I want to write, but I do know that I want to. So I've taken July and August off this year to give myself some time and space just to think about what I want to do and just reflect a wee bit on this book and how it's changed my life and changed my sense of self, which which it really has. It's just really been incredible, but I do feel free, I do feel like a grown-up for the first time in my life, I feel like an adult, she's like 38 years old, ridiculous, 37, whatever I am, so old I've forgotten, but you know, I feel like a grown-up, and I feel very much at peace with my past and myself, and maybe I'll never write another book, and, and maybe I will, but I've written the book that I really, really wanted to write
0: and it's a book that i think a lot of people will really really want to read it's called maggie and me and i've been talking with its author damian barr it's just out from bloomsbury here in the states you have been listening to life stories and i'm ron hogan now if you're subscribed to the podcast on itunes already thank you very much for that if you aren't it's very easy to do and that will make it easier for you to get subsequent episodes as well and When you do subscribe, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which will make it easier for other people to find it down the line as well. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again for another episode soon. Take care.